Hi, I'm Jason Stockwell. Welcome to Inside the Hive, a show about people in robotics. So Inside the Hive focuses on three things, technology, stories, and people, all within the field of robotics. Today, we're lucky enough to be joined by Frank Nichols. Frank has a tremendous amount of experience within robotics, and he talks about that today. So he started out in manufacturing, and then he's gone on to teaching, and teaching overseas as well. So he spent a lot of time over in China, Brunei, Singapore, and Hong Kong. Now, Frank's used that experience to write two books about how to make teaching robotics more practical. He also has an interesting pattern out at the moment about movement in actuators, which he talks about towards the end. Hi Frank, thanks very much for coming in and sitting down with us. Jason, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. We're definitely glad to have you too. So Frank, I guess the start of your journey into academia was a little bit less conventional. You came through the Air Force. Uh, can you tell us about the decision you made to go there rather than down the university route initially? Okay, uh, I guess I'm a, what you call a baby boomer and uh, I didn't do very well at school. I was always working on motorbikes and uh, basically uh, then I finished up with school, not, not achieving, uh, I think I got five, took eight O levels, failed five, passed out with three, then stayed in the sixth form and did another two O levels. And then I had to think, what do I want to do with my life? Uh, but I knew, kind of knew I wanted to be an engineer before I could even spell it, or even knew what it was. So even like age of five, of messing about with Meccano. Uh, so then uh, I guess uh, the Air Force just came along uh, and I think I wanted to get away from home, something new and different, because I was a bit of a bad boy. Uh, actually a really bad boy, I think. <laughs> and then I joined the Air Force and I really liked it. I liked it just strangely. I liked it. I loved the discipline, bullying boots and out on the, on the square, uh, marching around. And then I shot to the top of the class in the uh, exams. It was, uh, it was as an electronic technician for, for aircraft. So it's called ELTEC Air. Um, yeah, so then um, I did, I passed out um, with uh, close to top marks. I wasn't the top student, but I suddenly realized I actually could, could do very well academic studies, maths and physics. Um, then I realized that I wanted to go for, so I passed out with an ordinary national certificate, electronics engineering. For, for me, it was, the, it, was, it was, I think I have to go back a bit. I think the, now I realize the school, there was a grammar school I went to in Bournemouth, and the, the headmaster there was only interested in top performing students. And I, I think actually he wasn't a good headmaster. Uh, so if you did not perform very, very well, you then were not, you were, you, you were out of the equation for teaching, discarded almost. So I think, it was, so when I, when in the Air Force, I was forced to stay, we had a curfew. I could not go out and play with, on motorbikes. I could not go roaring around my hometown, uh, Bournemouth, on, on a motorbike. Uh, so I was forced to s study. And uh, I realized that when I did study, I could do very well in the exams. And uh, I also realized the maths and the physics related very well with my practical experience. Mm. I started to see the, jo the joining up of the maths and the physics with the practical side. And that has stayed with me to this day now. So uh, then, then I <coughs> finished my apprenticeship in the Air Force. Uh, this was RAF Cosford as an electronic technician. And then I went to uh, east of England to RAF Honington working on Buccaneers. 
on the electronic system, that's radar, um, communications, navigation instruments, and the bomb delivery system. And that was a fascinating device. That bomb delivery system was full of analog server mechanisms. And these analog server mechanisms, they took the, uh, uh, how fast the aeroplane was flying, how high it was above the, above the, the, the ground, uh, and then how far the target was away. And then it would ask the pilot to pull up at something like seven degrees a second, uh, using a head-up display, and then the uh, the bomb delivery system would release the bomb at the right time, right angle of delivery, and the right speed, uh, and then the bomb would hopefully go on target. And it was doing real-time computation using analog server mechanisms. Uh, now, a few years later, after that, the that complete computer, analog server mechanism computer, which weighed about 50k, well. Uh, 40 kgs was replaced with like a 1 kg or less uh, digital computer. So you saw this transformation, in, uh, which was amazing. Uh, yeah. But, so, but you, what you realize is that the analog server mechanisms were doing this amazing computation in real time, um, like wearing gears and cogs and things like that. Uh, so anyway, it's still relevant today because I bring those analog server mechanisms to my students. Uh, and uh, they're still highly relevant server mechanisms. What's quite important to your role now is that you had that real-world engineering experience as well, Frank. Um, what was your path to becoming an engineer? So uh, after, after, so when I was I was in doing adult service, working on the the Buccaneer fighter bomber, um, I really wanted to do more than be a technician. I wanted to be an engineer. Uh, so the engineer is something I wanted to design. I realized my love for design. Uh, so I then had to work my way to plan how I was going to do that. So I, I went to night school. The Air Force allowed you to go to night school. And I changed from doing electronics to mechanics. So I got a, I'd already got an ONC, Ordinary National Certificate in, in Electrical Electronic Engineering. <clears throat> so then I decided to do um, uh, mechanical Engineering, HNC, High National Certificate at uh, Cambridge College, Cambridge College of Arts and Technology. And then, uh, um, because I realized that it wasn't just electronics I was interested in, I was interested in electronics and mechanics, which basically is meaning that I'm moving towards mechatronics. So mechatronics is the uh, ally between mechanical, electronic, and computing, the, the synergistic, harmonious uh, bringing together of those three disciplines, mechanical, electronics, and computing. Um, so then I got that high national certificate. Then I wanted more. I wanted to go to university. And then I remember I went on a trip whilst at, at Cambridge College. We went on a trip one around the Cambridge Colleges. And I was entranced by these Cambridge Colleges, the wonderful environment that they've created. And then I checked out the course in engineering there, and I realized it's just what I wanted, engineering science. It was neither aerospace or mechanical electronic, it was called engineering science. And I thought, this is for me, I want this, but it's a hallowed institute. How am I going to, Yay. <laughs> you know, coming from like, uh, 
Uh, not an elite, a non-elite background. I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? But I fortunately got top marks in my high national certificate and endorsements also uh, distinction. So armed with these uh, <clears throat> uh, qualifications, I, I went to the uh, uh, um, the one of the colleges, and I thought, which college do I do I aim for? And I thought, there's 24 colleges there. So I took the first one in the book, Christ College. And it's a strange way of choosing <laughs> colleges. And I still remember when I managed to get an interview there, they said, uh, why, why did you choose um, Christ College? And I said it was the first one in the book, and they all rolled around laughing. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Oh. So, um, so I managed to get a place there, and it's one of the best times in my life was to be at this hallowed institute. And uh, I find I found that engineering there is just uh, it's just amazing because it's engineering science. So and it's and it's really more applied physics than engineering. I mean, I can completely imagine it would be a huge change going from the RAF to, as you said, an institution like Cambridge. Did you notice any significant change yourself? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was it was a big change. It was because all of a sudden you you come from like. Uh, um, a non-elite background, and then you're you're thrown in with elite guys that have come from Eton and uh, Winchester College and the like. But at that time, they were they were actually taking on uh, people that just on on merit from from uh, normal backgrounds. Mm. So anyway, but it was quite a, an amazing experience I found there, and uh, very challenging. Uh, and uh, you're up against very clever, smart students, your, your, your classmates you have to compete against. So it was a fantastic experience. And strangely enough, Cambridge University, the engineering department, they, they, um, they have many, many experiments. I remember we were all had one experiment. We had to make a reinforced concrete beam. They took us into this lab room and then they said, roll your sleeves up, you're going to be mixing concrete. And I thought, wow. This, they're really down to earth as well as highly theoretical, this, this university. So, so there we were, we were mixing concrete, and I thought, this is great. This is the sort of thing I used to do with my dad and uncle. <laughs> and, uh, you know, make the right, the right amount of sand and, and uh, uh, gravel and, uh, and uh, cement. And anyway, so we made, and then we had to lay the, the steel in the beam. And then uh, we also had to make a four-inch cube sample. And then we came back two weeks later and we tested the whole, the whole caboodle. So we had to test the beam and test the sample. Uh, so it's highly theoretical and it's highly practical too. So I really, it's fantastic that course, that, that engineering degree course. So. so we'll talk about that hands-on approach and how you've uh, used that a lot in your um, lectures and teaching as well. Um, but just post Cambridge, so you've come out of this institutional environment and you went straight into being an engineer. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I, I went to a, a, a wonderful company in Sirencester called Lucas Microelectronic Control Systems. And they're doing amazing stuff. Uh, it's a startup company, and we was tasked about uh, half a dozen of us, and we grew to about a dozen. And we were tasked with uh, coming, designing the first, well, it may not be in the world's first, but pretty close. It was certainly Britain's first diesel fuel um, electronic fuel injection system for diesel engines for automotive use. So we had to transform the existing mechanical system into an electromechanical system and with a microcomputer controlled. 
Um, so I was tasked with designing the, uh, the, one of the sensors, which is for the, um, the timing of the, the injection of the fuel, uh, an inductive displacement transducer. Um, and it was a small team. Uh, that was a wonderful experience. And that was really, we were really putting into practice all the theory, electromagnetic theory. Uh, the other members of the team where they were working on the, um, uh, they were working on the electronic side and microcomputer side. Mm -hmm. um, and that really gave you loads of experience in, in manufacturing and designing and, and getting the, the, the product ready for a deadline and it had to work, it had to work to a specification. Then I, I realized I didn't know enough about microcomputers. And that time, everybody was going crazy with the microcomputer, introducing it to all their products. And I started to become absolutely fascinated with the microcomputer and how it could transform mechanical systems. Up to that time, the compute computation was done with mechanical devices. So for example, the carburetor for an engine, petrol engine, uh, has to feed in the, the right stoichiometric ratio of, of fuel to air. It has to uh, work out the, um, the timing for the spark as well. It has to take into account the amount of fuel that's going in. So it's a mechanical, mechanical computer. And that, that really was an amazing mechanical device, but the computation was done mechanically. And then what the microcomputer was saying is that you mechanical guys have got to rethink everything now because we're going to introduce the mechanical, uh, the microcomputer that's going to take the place of your mechanical computers. So the mechanical engineers are the first ones really to not exactly suffer, they had to reinvent themselves because of the microcomputer. In fact, uh, that's why mechatronics uh, emanated really from mechanical departments rather than the electronic departments because the mechanical mechanical people had to rethink, otherwise they were going to be decimated. Mm. You know, there, there are no jobs for them anymore. It's the microcomputer was going to do the computing. So it's a fascinating time that was, the, the microcomputer coming out. It uh, really just disturbed and dislodged a lot of thinking at the time, but for the better. So then, but then, I, but I realized I was working on electromagnetics at that time, and I could see all the, the my class, my uh, colleagues around me, they were working, doing computing, writing uh, and talking a different language, talking a language I did not understand. Um, and so I thought, I'm fascinated with this and I, and I want to learn about it. So then I went off to get a master's in digital electronic systems at Cranfield. So I ravenously, is that the right word? <laughs> Sucked up all this knowledge. That was, a, that was fantastic. So then I, at the end of the year, I, th I thought, got my master's, I got the knowledge, then, then I thought I would uh, use it. So after your master's, Frank, you uh, were going to go back into the automotive sector, and then you ended up going into the tobacco sector. Is that, that, that seems like the right path you went on. And then can you tell me about some of the challenges that you had? Uh, and how you were working with robotics when you were in the tobacco industry. They had amazing challenges. So I thought it wasn't comfortable being in, in tobacco, but on the other hand, they had amazing challenges. And I realize now those challenges are here to still, still very much here today and they're concerned with agriculture. So for example, 
you, I had to go to, to America uh, many times and uh, to see how about tobacco leaves. So this, this company was, was concerned not with cigarette wood making, but was concerned with what's called primary tobacco processing, where you take the tobacco leaf, like the big Virginia tobacco leaf, and you have to process it. And that means you have to compact it and you have to put it into like a, a, a big lathe, uh, sorry, a big um, a thickness of planer. Okay, so, so, the, so the tobacco was compacted and then they were put into a feeder and then this cutting these cutting knives would rotate and make, let's say, one millimeter strips of tobacco, which then fell, fell below and then they were taken eventually to the, this, the uh, cigarette making machine. But what they didn't want is that one of the things that they wanted to improve the tobacco quality was to excise the stem of the tobacco leaf. You have a hard stem at the center of the tobacco leaf. That, they wanted to excise that. So they asked me to look at this, how to, and at that time computer vision systems were coming out. So I worked with these computer vision system guys in the uh, US. And then I was working on the mechanical side. And then I had to work on some other aspects of tobacco, like tobacco quality. But I, the main thing is what I realized is how the difficult devices the difficult problems that uh, agriculture produces up, because I consider tobacco as, as the agriculture industry, and that you have to deal with the vagaries of uh, nature's products. And, you, and the idea was to produce robots which, which could uh, deal with this. And even to till today, we're st we are still having problems in agriculture. We're involved with vision and manipulation, picking strawberries and the like. And uh, so that, that was rearing its head. Robotics was rearing its head. This is like the early 80s, the very early 80s. Uh, and uh, so dealing, so that was a very interesting experience for me. Uh, I spent three years there and I, I wouldn't, only had with limited success because I think at that time, uh, technology was not completely developed that well, but nonetheless, some of the problems were addressed. And, but the main thing is I realized how, how difficult the problems were in certain areas and that robotics wasn't, was needed to solve these problems. And now these, these problems um, are being addressed, still being addressed now, um, and with the latest technology, and certainly computer vision, I think, is, is improved so much now. It's got cheaper, it's much more powerful as well. Uh, but you, now you, you still need the mechanics. So I'll give you an example. I was just talking to a friend of mine this weekend, and he was saying in the, in the cow industry, cattle industry in, in Australia, what he wants to do is to feed, feed uh, cows through a pen and then inoculate them automatically with robots. So for example, it's done by hand. You, you, you take the cow, you feed it into a pen, you tighten it into the pen. You then have to take your, your hand and, and open the, the mouth of the cow and put a shot of, um, of antibiotics into its mouth. Uh, and then things like uh, the, you have to trim the horns as well. Mm. So this is a very expensive procedure using human beings to do this, and it's a difficult problem to solve. So it's another problem that needs to be solved in robot using robotics, um, using, but, but tackling the vagaries of nature, and including animals or vegetation or whatever, agriculture, it's very difficult to do that. But it, so is that because there are a lot of variables? A lot of variables, yeah. yeah. 
So then, Frank, the next progression for you was to go from that tobacco company into a huge engineering company. Um, so what was that transition like and was it a huge change for you at the time? Um, so that, um, that was very different. So, that, so you go from a somewhat uh, indeterministic um, tobacco company to somewhat which is quite deterministic but you have to be careful there. So I had, we had problems uh, to solve with the company, uh, which was into very precise mechanical engineering, but also electronic and computing. So highly mechatronics. Everything was going mechatronics, really. In the early 80s, early, all mechatronics really took off in uh, the, the early 80s. Many products nowadays are mechatronic based. Some things are purely electronic. Uh, but many, many products involve a mechanical system uh, which has to be articulated with uh, servos and uh, electric motors, uh, sometimes hydraulic systems, and then but your computer is controlling everything. So you went from the engineering institution into a university. Uh, how did you go through that process and how did you get into lecturing and what made you want to do it? I wanted to get a PhD. I think this was maybe part of the calling towards uh, academia. I don't know, but I tell you, I'll be honest with you. The, when you're in industry as a design engineer, it's a fascinating area to be in. I highly recommend young people to consider design engineering um, because it's, it's challenging, it's very creative. A lot of problem solving. A lot of problem solving. Uh, <coughs> and I'm talking about engineering product design. Um, engineering product design. And you, you've, you need to consider all the maths and the physics and the manufacturing. You have to juggle many balls in the air. And you have to find an optimum solution. It's fascinating. But, um, you know, I'll be ruthlessly honest with you. This pay, it's not well paid. It's highly creative. Um, and there are various reasons for, not, for it not being well paid. The other thing is I wanted some recognition. So I wanted a, the doctor title. It sounds a bit pretentious, but it, it's, it kind of helps, I think, to get the doctor title. I guess it gives you more clout in a way. I don't know, you just more clout, yeah, basically. And then, uh, so the, uh, the idea is that, um, so I had to, how do I gonna do this? You know, I've got a family, mortgage, you know, so it's quite difficult. So I, I, I went to university as a lecturer so I went as a lecturer, uh, lecturing on mechanical engineering subjects and did the PhD at the same time. And uh, whilst also doing some consultancy projects for industry and uh, then got the, got the PhD and then decided to use that in industry. And I worked for a terrific company, Danish company, and they were making electromagnetic flow meters and I thought, mm, not very interesting electromagnetic flow meters. Uh, but I took the job and it turned out to be one of the, the most interesting, fascinating jobs I've had. Uh, it's all to do with electromagnetics and there's no moving parts. And I thought, how can this be interesting? Well, it's the maths and the physics involved with it. And the problems that you have, how do you make this product improve its performance, lower its cost, and that's one of the major things in, engin in engineering. Engineering is not engineering at all, it's ingeniousness. The, it's these English people that uh, misuse the term 
engineer. And it should be ingenior. So on, on the continent, they are called ingenious, ingenieurs. And, and, and that means to be ingenious. Yes, you can be ingenious with engines, but uh, really it's the, the term used should be in, ingenious person, ingenieur, but the, it doesn't sound right. So yes, so these electromagnetic flow meters, no moving parts, turned out to be one of the most fascinating products that I worked on. And, uh, and I learned so much about noise, noise signals. So the electromagnetic flow meter gives you electronic signal uh, voltage output uh, proportional to the, 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 the uh, speed of uh, fluid that flows through a pipe, which can be, let's say, water. And uh, you, you can, if you know the area of the pipe and then you know its, its speed through the pipe, then you can get the quantity of the, the flow rate in liters per second, something like that, based on the voltage signal out. Uh, and then there's no impeller, there's nothing in, inside there, there's just a magnetic field that goes across it and that, that, that's the conductive fluid, slightly conductive fluid water uh, flows through the pipe, induces a voltage proportional to its speed um, and then you then relate that speed, that, that voltage to, to the flow rate but it's much more complicated than that because it's a noisy signal and it's a very small signal and uh, so without going into too much detail, just the analysis, the mathematical analysis and the, uh, the analysis of the physics and that is related to the design and the construction and the measurement of the signal and how accurate you can make it turned out to be fascinating. Wow, wow. So I, loved I it there. think I'm lucky enough to have known you for a little while now and I had no idea that you worked for that engineering company in the UK before you went abroad. Um, but in terms of why you chose to go abroad and, and lecture over there, can you just talk, talk me through your uh, thinking behind that? Because that must have been a huge move. Right. I had an offer to go to Hong Kong. It's all, a, lot of ah. it's, a lot of it's to do with paid. So then um, I went off to my... I'd already had a foray into, into academia with uh, doing the PhD and as a lecturer and then a break into this electromagnetic flow meter work. And then I, then I went to Hong Kong where my pay was almost doubled and teaching engineering out there. It was a fascinating time. And I find that the students uh, wanted to learn, very creative. Um, and then after that, Singapore came up. I went to Singapore, so it's starting to become very interesting in the Far East. And now Singapore is a fascinating country. We can learn from Singapore now, I feel. They learned from the British um, in, the, in the old days. Now I feel we can learn from um, these ex-colonies, -ex if you like. They, I feel, are doing things a lot more right than we are. And just off the top of your head, why, what makes you say that? What are they doing right? They're paying people extremely well in teaching. That's not just at university teaching, but at school teaching. It's making it very worthwhile for an honorable, if you like, to, to be a teacher. The other thing is um, they're, they're elevating the status of engineering. Um, so, and they're getting a lot of young people into engineering. Why? Because they need to, to build up the economy and they're doing very well, extremely well, in fact, Singapore. They're investing hugely into educating young people into technology 
it's very it's changing now, very much into robotics, uh, Singapore. Also, they're investing hugely into startup companies and getting people to automate many areas, food, uh, industry, many areas being, and, and also that they, yes, they do buy a lot of stuff from uh, overseas, but now, once again, you have to be careful. They're setting up their own businesses and inventing themselves their own products. They decide what they think carefully about what they which direction they want their country to go in. They, they are a very small country. They have to survive. They have to do well. And how do they do that? They, they do it by careful thinking. They go out to countries like Israel, all small countries, Israel, Denmark, uh, Holland, and they find out all the best things about these countries, how they survive. I mean, Israel's surviving, it's got fantastic technology there. They then think about these ideas. They have the top people in the government, very top people in the government. And uh, they think about carefully about their strategy, and then they act decisively, and they put huge amounts of money into these ideas that they've thought about for a long time. And one of them is education. You should see some of the uh, technical colleges. These are not university technical colleges. They will put a large number of CNC machines in there. And then they'll teach all the youngsters how to operate these CNC machines. And then they will go into industry and become very effective. Their education system is fantastic. That's right at school level and at university level. I was at Nanyang Technological University, amazing university, and uh, investing in huge amounts of money in talent and in infrastructure. Uh, it's a fantastic uh, campus, beautiful campus too. And uh, you can see that they decide to do something and then they, they really see it through. And uh, you can see the benefit of that. The, one of the main strategies they have is education and technology. And they also, uh, yes, and what they're really investing a lot now, as I say, in these startup companies, getting young, young people starting up companies, uh, getting into robotics. They're also aiming to get the academic people uh, largely involved with this too, so they can start up the startup companies. I think, uh, I think largely uh, Singapore is driven f uh, by its government. So I, I perceive that the, the government is investing and encouraging the professors. They've got so much money invested into them as professors of engineering by the government to, and um, what's it for? For, uh, I'm talking about millions of pounds, sing dollars, that they, they are personally dealing with to, to get companies going in Singapore. The government is forcing these academics to come up with some, with some goods. They've got to create companies. They've got to get young people involved with creating these companies. They've got to automate everywhere from food to painting inside of buildings automatically. And they, by the way, Singapore brings in uh, Nobel Prize winners into the, the universities. They, they will they bring in fantastic academics. They, as I say, they decide they're going to do something and they, they do it big time. So I think the money is, is being, comes from the government investing into the universities and then they, give, they task the professors to set up companies to get young people involved.
They're moving away. They're moving away from just paper publishing. The next, if you, if I have a criticism of academia, it's, it's too much about paper publishing, and not enough about producing um, machines that work. So you put money into into universities. You you say you expect some hardware to come out, some products that are going to help society create businesses, uh, solve problems in industry, not just produce papers which which go onto a shelf. So after Singapore came Brunei, and I've always been fascinated by Brunei, so I'm really excited to hear what you've got to say about it. But um, what was your experience over there? Fascinating place, actually Brunei, very small, 300,000 people, something like that. Um, and then their the small university, very nice university. But you can see the difference between Singapore and Brunei, which is only like two hours flight away, that both of them now, Singapore has got nothing. It's got no, no raw materials, no oil or gas. And look how rich they've made themselves. Then you look at Brunei and uh, it's all oil and gas revenue. And you think, why are they not like Singapore? You know, and it's all about investment. So you can see if you don't invest in, uh, in, in a future, then uh, you, you're not going to be as rich like, like Singapore, which has, has nothing, no raw materials. And after Brunei, was it back to the UK? Oh, back to Singapore. So then after, after Brunei, I went back to Singapore. Okay, and had things changed from your three years leave? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's shockingly good, uh, Singapore. It's, it's a glittering city. That's just amazing. And uh, you can see the benefit of a, a government which is benevolent. Uh, yes, there are lots of criticisms you can level against the Singapore government. But, you know, the good side is that they are benevolent, not malevolent, benevolent. You know, they have, they have the, you go to Changi Airport, it's so many areas, they, they have got such grand plans for Singapore and they're seeing it through. We can learn from this country. They've done it such a short time. Oh God, I didn't realize you were away for so long. So it was Hong Kong, Singapore, Brunei, Singapore, home? Or I, I thought you went to China as well. <laughs> Given my age away. <laughs> yeah, so I was China for five years. Uh, that was, so I was at University of Nottingham, Ningbo, China for five years. And uh, China's a fantastic experience too. Their train system is phenomenal. So once again, you can see that these countries, they're really on the way up, the Far Eastern countries on the way up. These, these Eastern, Far Eastern countries are benefiting from will, the will of the government to do much better instead of like squabbling and this and that. It's, uh, they have lots of and good ideas. And, um, one example of the train system in China. It's phenomenal. You'll get on a train from, say, Ningbo to Shanghai. You look up and it's very smooth, very smooth ride. And you can book your ticket and it's, uh, it's not, it's, uh, you know, you, know you, you reliably can book your ticket, get the seat, and it's not expensive. And you look up and you're thinking, my goodness, we're doing 305 kilometers per hour. 
<laughs> and it's smooth as silk. And, you, and it's China built. These trains are China built. And they've taken their train system way into uh, Zhejiang province, to the way out west. And then you look at all the technology like the ast astronomical telescope thing that they've got. Uh, I think it's in the west of China, one of the biggest radio telescopes in the world, I think. It's like, rethink this whole thing. We yeah. need, to, these, these guys are benefiting from investment and the will to, do, to improve and make things better instead of, as I say, squabbling. Yeah, well, it must be completely different to see a government over there to the way that it is, you know, in the Western world. Um, but without getting too political, uh, you've written two books. Were they the outcome of your results in China? Uh, I wrote the, wrote, the, wrote the two books in China. Yeah, although the, the second one that's just been published is uh, the result of work that was done in Singapore. And uh, I managed to um, improve the writing, get it uh, ironed out, a lot of th things ironed out with the book, and now it's published, yeah. Mm. Oh, it was uh, a mixture of your, all of your time away then, I guess. So what made you want to pull these books together to start with? Because I've, we've, I've, with my experience in academia, I realize now that there's some f fantastic components out there, engineering components, such as uh, your electric motors, sensors, actuators, that you can make some very interesting devices for students that are low cost and teach the maths and the physics. At the same time, teaches them how to build robots from say cardboard. And they, so I've started to work out ideas to uh, get in, uh, to get the universities interested in these ideas, which is to teach engineering in a different way, a much more exciting and interesting way. And at the same time covering all the, all the theory. Um, and so that is, what I'm working on right now, and I've, it's the subject of the two books that have just been published. And uh, one area I'm working, one particular robot I'm working on right now is called uh, the catapult robot. And this catapult robot is eventually will lead to AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning outcomes for students. And they build the robot themselves. They build the robot, they then program the robot and they have to catapult uh, the ping pong ball into a basket uh, anywhere between uh, close by and four meters away, and the idea is to develop the the, the idea the idea is to develop the game of uh, robot ping pong basketball on a table measuring sixteen feet by eight feet, in other words, four point eight meters by two point four meters, and on that table there will be uh, n number of these robots with wheeled robots running around that can shoot ping pong balls, catapult them uh, from man to man, robot to robot, or from robot to basket. There are many, many uh, challenges there for students. So the idea is you teach students how to build robots, how to program robots. You don't just give them the robot and then say, uh, just operate it or program it. You, you teach them how to build that robot, and I use cardboard, and it's an amazing material. You can, and then no, no 3D printing, cardboard. They can sit there working in teams, 
and uh, I teach them how to cut precisely and I teach them all sorts of mechanical techniques, structural stiffness, lightness, stiffness and strength techniques and then they get the idea and then they, they can catch the fish themselves. In other words, they can go on and create their own robots because you've taught them the manufacturing techniques which they can then even use later to 3D print or they can go on to lay the milling machine or they can find some other manufacturing technique. And then they also have a game playing concept too. So that's teaching them uh, how to solve the difficult problems in industry now, which are, which are concerned with artificial intelligence and machine learning. And it's all there as a very interesting and exciting game playing scenario. And they create the whole thing themselves. Uh, and they work in like a class and then in teams and then, and then they can be collaborative and competitive. So if you have, say, two robots against two robots, the two robots have to be collaborative against and compete against the other two. So there's a whole bunch of learning outcomes. Oh, wow. So it really is completely beyond books and more of a complete robotics teaching methodology. That's fantastic. Um, so now the books are all together. You're back here. You settled in? <laughs> and yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've been back now eight, nine months, and I've... I've taught for two months here and I was I was a bit um, anxious uh, like I almost because I'm British I'm thinking I almost feel like a foreigner coming back I didn't know what to expect from students or the whole culture here it's like new to me so I was very anxious and uh, didn't know what to expect what changes have you noticed uh, from what I've seen at the moment I don't see much difference to be honest with you now what does that mean that means that if there's not much difference between UK, a small sample of course, UK and the Far East, what does that imply? It means the Far East is caught up with the West and maybe in some areas is better than the West. I don't know, it's still, but it's very interesting, isn't it? And then, uh, but I, t I must say this, the, the facilities, for example, going back a bit now to uh, NTU, Nanyang, the, the Singapore universities, the facilities Singapore has, I, th I think they're second to none. They're fantastic, the facilities they have there. Something I've only just found out because you told me off of the recording earlier on. Um, you've just got a patent for something. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you're investigating? Okay, so <laughs> my, I have a, a major driven interest in robotics, um, which is the bio, a biomimicking muscle. And I think a lot of us know about the Boston Dynamics mini spot dog, um, which uses what's called a series spring elastic actuator. Now, 15 years ago, I, I started to realize uh, that the problem of robot actuation is a huge problem in robotics. Uh, we all have fantastic computers now, vision systems and control algorithms, uh, sensors, uh, but we actually don't have a, a very good muscle, an actuator. An actuator is a, is a device which produces motion. Uh, muscles are actuators. And uh, <coughs> there's uh, two guys, Pratt and Williamson at MIT, uh, invented this series spring elastic actuator in 19, I think it's about 1995. They started to realize that this muscle is a real problem in robotics. 
It's a huge problem and not many people are really going out to solve it. They're working on sensors, they're working on algorithms and computation and things like that, but the Cinderella actually is the, the Cinderella problem is the muscle, the actuator. You just imagine if we have muscles, biomimicking muscles, robotic actuation, actuators, which you can buy off the shelf, like our own muscles, which, which power our arms and our legs, and uh, they are cheap, they are easily applied to a mechanical system, they're easily controllable, they are lightweight, the same power to weight ratio, the same um, power to volume ratio as our own muscles, you will transform the world because you will have what you see in Hollywood films. You will have these robots which can do crazy things. They can be, uh, they're humanoid robots. They can run faster than Usain Bolt. You can make bird robots that uh, can fly faster and better than an eagle can swoop and dive. You can create all these animal robots. Uh, if you have the muscle, because I believe we have the computational ability, we have the sensing ability, we don't have the actuation ability. If we had that, you will have all the robots that you see in Hollywood, on, in the films. And you think, and then you think this will transform um, society. Good sides and bad sides. Anyway, so these guys, Pratt and Williamson, they solved the problem to a point with the series spring elastic actuator, and they use it to this day on, Boston, on the Boston Dynamics uh, mini dog, mm -hmm. and largely driven by Mark Raybert. This, these robots cannot run, cannot gallop. They do an amazing job. They are amazing robots that they, they produce. But also the Chinese are now recreating them, Unitree are creating them. Uh, other companies are um, creating them. But they cannot run. They cannot gallop. So there's still, we still do not have the real biomimicking muscle. Anyway, so I, I have been fascinated with this problem at the same time as MIT. But <clears throat> so I thought, how, I studied biology. I studied how muscles work and realized that maybe we can solve this with friction. So anyway, I'm not going to go too much detail. The idea is patented. Uh, I built the prototype. The prototype is uh, actually on my, you can see it on my website. And uh, it's, it's uh, got a US patent now. Yeah, uh, it was patented two, two years ago. And I'm working on it still, uh, but I need more resources to do it. But I believe that this device, which is a bit noisy at the moment, um, it's got a lot of problems to solve still, but basically the idea is still the right idea, I think, for the next stage of a muscle, which means it can run, jump, it can f fly. Throw? Throw, absolutely throw, yeah. Um, it's got all the dynamic characteristics of our own muscles, so it can hold static positions. It can also uh, be dynamic, mm. as you say, it can throw, but and also it can be used for like eagle, eagle birds. What I'm concentrating on is, is more in the area of recreating a, a robot which is, comes close to humanoid robots or animal robots. That's why I, I, I consider this research area 
um, dynamic, agile animal robots. Mm. Dynamic, agile animal robots. So you recreate animal robots in its entirety, not for health. Yes, it can be used for health, but I'm, I'm thinking I, I, I can't, I have to, I'm more interested in this area. Yes, you can apply it to this area, but you can't do everything in life. You have to concentrate on one particular area. But also I want to say this too. Some people will say losing jobs, all this automation. I think you actually create jobs. I've I got one, one view on robots, and that's this, that robots cannot be made cheaply. Okay, that's up for discussion. Maybe in a few, but, but when, you, when you look at, I, I see that right now we have to use the electro, electric motor. We have to use electromagnetic energy for force actuation to create motion. With electromagnetic energy, that means the electric motor, it means copper wires, sometimes aluminium wires, and it means like um, rare earth permanent magnets. They're, they're, yes, arguably they can be cheap, but basically the electric motor cannot be made cheaply. The whole robot cannot, cannot be made cheaply. When you have many numbers of degrees of freedom, which means many numbers of uh, limb motion, limb, limb actuators, or uh, numbers of electric motors on your robot. It cannot be done cheaply. And, the, and you've, got, you've got the servicing side to it too. So I see that maybe robots should, you don't buy robots, they're leased. And um, they, there's a, they'll be likely to be a servicing aspect. So this, is, this will create jobs. So these robots need to be serviced. And human beings, when they get all the component parts of robots, they'll be creating their own robots from off-the-shelf components. If you have, for example, easily available actuator, you already have this. People already do this. They create jobs. If you create, put on the market all sorts of very interesting components, microcomputers, which are getting smaller, batteries, actuators, you'll find that human beings will, will create all these amazing devices, which you've never even thought of. And they're actually creating jobs. It's creating ideas, creating opportunities. It's not taking away jobs. That is a hugely interesting point. And I think we're exploring that in future episodes as well, because it's a much debated topic at the moment. But Frank, I just want to take the time to say thank you very much for your time. Great. Thank you, Jason, too. Thank you. find out more about Frank, his website is franksrobomachines.com. It's all one word. The other website he looks after is called impulseactuators.com. I'd strongly recommend looking at the books that he's got on there. I think one of them is available on Audible. It essentially shows you how to build a robot for yourself out of cardboard. Um, I'm not going to lie, the electronics aren't out of cardboard. That's separate. Thank you for listening to Inside the Hive. I'm Jason Stockwell. You can follow us on social media at WeAreBotHive. That's on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. This episode was made at the beautiful Bristol Robotics Lab. See you next week.